Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels, vehicles, emissions, and transport energy. I'm your host, Tammy Klein. I'm principal uh, and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. And with me today, I'm super excited to have Brendan Jordan, who is Vice President of Transportation and Fuels for the Great Plains Institute. Brendan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tammy. Oh, thanks for being here. So let me tell you all a little bit about Brendan. Brendan joined the Great Plains Institute in 2004 and is vice president, as I said. He has 10 years of experience leading initiatives to promote deployment of clean energy technology. He works across subject areas, including bioenergy, low-carbon fuels, which we're going to talk about today, transportation, energy infrastructure, and sustainable communities. He's also part of a team collaborating with Argonne National Laboratories on life cycle accounting methodology for biofuels. He works nationally and regionally on policy to support deployment of low carbon fuels and renewable chemicals. Brendan has a master of science uh, in a master of science in science, technology, and in environmental policy from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs, great school, and an undergraduate degree in biology from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Originally from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Brendan lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota with his wife and two daughters. Again, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy. <laughs> so let's get into this. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit more about what Great Plains Institute does um, and a little bit more about your role? Yeah, well, Great Plains Institute is a nonprofit organization and we're headquartered in Minnesota. And we, we work on, on the energy transition. We're, we're working on a whole variety of strategies related to decarbonizing all sectors of the economy. I focus on our transportation and fuels work, but we have programs related to uh, industrial sector, electric sector. Uh, we have sustainable communities work, uh, renewable energy. And so, you know, there's a lot of organizations that operate in that space. And what's really unique about the Great Plains Institute is our focus on convening, facilitation, and consensus building. We're, we're really focused on identifying strategies where you can, you can build a broad coalition in support that involves all, all different sectors ranging from, you know, uh, you know, concrete manufacturers to electric utilities to, you know, environmental and conservation NGOs to the ag sector. Um, so that, you know, that's our focus. And, and there are, again, there's other groups that do convening and facilitation, but we'll, we're also advocates in the sense that if, if there's a group that is ready to rally around a, a policy or a strategy, we will work with them to do what it takes to, to get things moving in the, in the world. Yeah, that's what I really appreciate about, um, GPI is the, um, broad-based, a coalition consensus um, building that you've developed that actually I really don't see, especially in transport energy, I don't really see um, that same level of consensus building that cuts so wide across different uh, sectors. Um, and also that it's focused in the mid Midwest, which really is different. And the solutions may be different for decarbonizing transport in the Midwest um, then let's say, you know, the coastal states. So it really takes into account 
the situation in the Midwestern states. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not a grafting a one size fits all uh, Mm -hmm. solution, um, you know, that you're, uh, that the group is sort of um, advocating for. And I really appreciate that as someone who actually lived in the Midwest for many, many years and still has a home, actually not far far from Eau Claire. (laughs) Um, So here's a great example. And I'm going to ask you about this of this um, uh, uh, sense of uh, coalition and consensus building. So last year, GPI, as you very well know, released a white paper proposing a clean fuels policy for the Midwest. And that was developed in a multi-stakeholder process that you led, as you very well know. So what I'm wondering is what's been the reaction to, it's now been a year since um, the paper has uh, been released. What's been the reaction to the draft policy in the Midwestern states? Um, you know, is the stakeholder process still going? And, and what kind of are the next steps in that process? Yeah, Tammy, and, and, it, and if you don't mind, I'll actually take it even a sort of a step earlier in that process and, yes. and talk briefly about what led to that white paper. And so, you know, we this is not the first time the Midwest has looked at this topic Um and, uh, you know, you, you know well and your listeners know there are clean fuel policies in other states, primarily on the West Coast, but, you know, in British Columbia um, and policies under consideration in, in other states in the U.S. like New Mexico and, and New York. Um, but when, when policies like this were first introduced going on 12 years ago, there was a, a regional effort uh, to look at a low carbon fuel standard policy in the Midwest, led by the Midwestern Governors Association, and and we helped facilitate that work. I would say at that time, that you know, there, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for this policy <laughs> with Midwestern right. stakeholders, um, and and it comes down to a few factors. Number one, you know, within the the biofuel sector and agriculture, there was there was just a feeling that you know we've got the renewable fuel standard, you know, that's creating the market we we need and. Uh, you know, we're, we're not really, there's not a lot of trust and goodwill between Midwestern egg groups and, and the California Air Resources Board, uh, which was designing the, you know, the first of these policies. Yeah. And, and just a feeling that it, you know, the, well, we don't think the credit prices are going to be that high. We don't think it's going to have that much impact. I think if we fast forward to three or four years ago, I mean, I think that a lot of those perceptions changed in the sense that, um, you know, there, for various reasons, the renewable fuel standard was not not doing what it was intended to do, um, which is a complex topic which we don't need to get into. But you know, uh, for for uh, biofuel producers that were able to sell into the California market, Oregon market, British Columbia market, they were finding that it was a pretty attractive policy that uh, they, they were getting low carbon scores in the life cycle assessment methodology. And, and uh, you know, it was creating some market pull. You know, we see in the, in the California market, for example, they've had the most rapid growth in E85 in that market of any, mm-hmm. any U.S. state. Um, mm-hmm. So, but at the same time, you know, Midwestern stakeholders feel that, you know, we're we're still not thrilled with all the decisions the California Air Resources Board has made, and uh, you know if we were going to design a Midwestern policy, it would it would be different in certain ways. Yeah, and you know there's this feeling that the Midwestern states have have shown a lot of leadership on 
uh, clean fuel policies. Mm-hmm. And here's an opportunity for us to step up and show some more leadership and really design a program that's that's tailored to the Midwest. So that's what led to that white paper. It was released in January of 2020 after a literal literal two-year stakeholder engagement process that included, and I'm, I've just got my my list up here, so I'm gonna <laughs> look off screen here, but you know, American Coalition for Ethanol was one of the co-founders of the process. We had a Renewable Fuels Association, a number of individual uh, biofuel producers, National Biodiesel Board. Um, we had uh, National Corn and a number of state ag commodity groups. But you know, we've got groups like uh, ChargePoint, yeah. like uh, um, let's see, a, a variety of groups in the uh, electric utility sector. Um, in the electric vehicle industry, automakers. And so really this broad, interesting broad coalition of groups that aren't always working together. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the main feature, you know, that has led to this, this momentum in the Midwest around clean fuels policy. After the release of the white paper, and this, this process involved stakeholders from a number of Midwestern states and national level stakeholders, mm-hmm. So, you know, the big focus just became supporting state-level stakeholder initiatives. And so that's taken a few formats. Um, One example here is uh, you can look at Minnesota, where a few things have happened. First, uh, the the governor of Minnesota, Governor Waltz, uh, convened a couple of uh, uh, task forces. One was the Governor's Council on Biofuels, aimed at kind of accelerating state leadership in the biofuel sector. Uh, there was a, a group also called the Sustainable Transportation Advisory Council convened by our Department of Transportation. Both of those groups recommended that the state move forward with a clean fuels policy. And a coalition took shape um, really to implement the, the principles laid out in the white paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, that group's now called the, the Minnesota Future Fuels Coalition. And there's a piece of legislation moving called the Future Fuels Act. Uh, which was really a kind of remarkable effort to to write a piece of legislation by consensus. And it has, you know, a uh, number of signatories, you know, everybody ranging from, uh, you know, Tesla to, uh, to the Minnesota Biofuels Association uh, to Conservation Minnesota. So really broad ranging groups, uh, 26 member coalition, and that, that legislation's moving in Minnesota. I would say under the radar, um, there is, interest and momentum in a number of states. We've seen clean fuel policy show up in governor-convened climate and energy task force reports in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, in Illinois. Um, and there's there's similar processes taking place in other states. And there's also sort of stakeholder-led initiatives. So nothing's um, turned into legislation yet, but I, I would be shocked if there aren't multiple states with clean fuels legislation in 2022, just yeah. given the, the level of interest we're seeing around the region. Yeah, my theory about that is simply the states have their hands full right now with pandemic mm-hmm. recovery, getting people vaccinated, getting government, you know, working, getting kids back to school. You know, I mean, it's it's all related to that right now. And so, um, you know, I do think the 2022 legislative mm-hmm. or legis- in a season, I think that is... 
the, the, the time to really watch. Right now, everything's kind of getting back. You know, the gears are, are grinding forward and things are kind of getting back on track. That's what the focus area is on. But I, I agree with you. I think 2022 is the year to watch. Yeah. And, and our, our approach in this, you, you sometimes see legislative efforts where, you know, let's put out a market marker bill. Let's throw it out there, get the discussion going. Um, we, we're really focused on doing the stakeholder engagement in advance of legislative introductions and really trying to get, get all the input and get buy-in yeah. up front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, can you talk about some of the, the, for the paper, there was some modeling underlying mm-hmm. um, the, um, the analyses um, in the paper. Can you talk about some of the modeling that was done for both electricity and the various um, biofuels? And, mm-hmm. you know, what does that say about, you know, the, the fuel mix that, you know, we could see shaping up in the future in mm-hmm. uh, the Midwestern states and beyond? Absolutely. So we did two types of modeling. Um, we did what what I would kind of describe as scenario modeling. And this is essentially, you know, if you're going to set a certain standard, what mix of fuels will be used for compliance? Mm-hmm. And, and I think in a stakeholder process, people want to know where they fit in, right? I, okay, right. I represent... Or do they? I represent the biodiesel industry. What does this do right. for biodiesel? What does this do for ethanol? What does this do for EVs? Does this accelerate adoption? And, oh, you know, is the other fuel a threat to me? Um, mm-hmm. Are EVs going to be a threat if I'm, if I'm a biofuel producer? You know, I'm hearing all this uh, 100% EV stuff. Um, wh- where, where do I fit into this future? And so we think it's really important. We spend a lot of time running different scenarios with a group of stakeholders, making adjustments and tweaks along the way until people... We came up with scenarios that people were were pretty comfortable with, and then we did. You know, the second piece of that was taking the the final scenarios and doing economic impact modeling, and we used a, a tool called the Implan model. And by the way, all this work was done with uh, ICF, which is a consulting mm-hmm. firm that mm-hmm. d- does a lot of work in this area. You know, at a high level, I'll just you know say a couple things. First. Um, it really, it, the, the modeling strongly endorses this idea that it's going to take a portfolio approach. Yeah. So we modeled different carbon intensity targets. We modeled 10%, 15%, and 20% carbon intensity reduction by 2035. Um, we found that all of those scenarios were feasible. Um, 20% may, might be a bit of a stretch, but it's doable. Um, you just, you know, and, and, and sort of the further you go, the more you need to draw on, um, not just increased biofuel blending, but, you know, carbon intensity reductions from the biofuel producers. So Mm -hmm. it's not just more ethanol, but lower carbon ethanol. Um, you you know, you do need some pretty, pretty, uh, uh, optimistic assumptions, but I'm an optimist about, uh, electric vehicle adoption. One of the things we found too, is that we didn't really find that the sectors were in competition with each other. And, and the, really the key here is, you know, we can, we can have pretty high level electric vehicle adoption. And even though that results in shrinking of the gasoline and diesel pool, as long as you can stay ahead of that with increasing blends, mm-hmm. um, then you can still have a growing biofuels sector yeah. you know, alongside growing, growing EV adoption. Um, so, 
the 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 implant modeling I think is 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 useful to um and and really what we found is it's it's pretty net positive economically speaking. So we modeled two states in the region, uh, just two representative states. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at Minnesota and Iowa. We are planning to repeat this analysis for other states in the region, and, and we're doing a lot of work to develop these scenario modeling tools to make it easy for other states to develop their own scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what we found is uh, you know, again net positive economic impacts totaling over $10 billion in terms of net output in the region over a 10-year period, um, and then significant employment impacts uh, representing close to 15,000 um, uh, job years over a 10-year period, and then significant impacts on employment income and even state and local tax impacts. I, I think one of the questions I get, and, and well, let me just, you asked about sectoral impacts. So we see strong positive impacts in the places you'd expect, mm-hmm. um, including for biofuel producers, whether that's biodiesel, uh, ethanol, um, renewable diesel, renewable natural gas. And we see impacts at the farm level as well. We also saw uh, some positive impacts in the electricity sector, which is inclusive of all the investment you expect to see yeah. in um, new renewable generation and new electric vehicle charging infrastructure. That's all kind of categorized under, under electricity sector. Um, one of the uh, um, things that may, may seem counterintuitive, but I, but I think it's actually intuitive when you, when you think about it some more is we saw really positive impacts for consumers, including gasoline users, which is essentially households as the big consumer of gasoline and the trucking sector, which is the biggest consumer of diesel fuel. And the, and the reason for that is, uh, you know, essentially there's, there's not a lot of market access to cleaner fuels and this increases market access. And a lot of times cleaner fuels are also cheaper fuels or better value fuels. And you also get new investment taking place in all those sectors. And so overall we saw a net benefit even though, you know, certainly it, there's, there's a variety of impacts, right? There's going to be some positive, some negative impacts throughout the economy, but overall the impacts we, we saw were positive. So how do you see, I mean, let's take one biofuel, uh, for example, how do you see the future of, of ethanol um, mm-hmm. shaping up in the coming years? Um, one of the things that really struck me about reading some of the um, some, some of the LCA work is, wow, um, you know, with uh, let's say a soil organic carbon credit, which I want to ask you about, and with the use of um, RNG replacing uh, natural gas, wow, you can really get mm-hmm. a net negative ethanol, and I feel yes. like. No one's talking about that. It's like, you know, we have 10% um, ethanol in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're all about these days, you know, uh, decarbonizing, um, you know, the U.S. and actually going beyond net zero, but reaching into, you know, know, net negative. And here you can do that with a soil organic carbon credit, a renewable, uh, using renewable natural gas and then implementing carbon capture and storage, which I, mm-hmm. I, I would agree is, you know, not an easy or inexpensive endeavor, but you can reach, you know, net negative. And I feel mm-hmm. like no one's really talking about this. And this is 
kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so and, can and, you talk about how you're you're seeing it? And, and you can get there with with proven technology that exactly. exists today. Exactly. Right. So this is not, uh, and and really, it's it's just a lack of sort of policy, uh, you know, alignment to, you know, you, you think about the renewable fuel standard. Um, that policy wants volumes. Yeah. You know, and it and it and it's it really hasn't asked the industry to deliver carbon reductions. And they the don't get rewarded for it. They really the industry don't. has 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 done so. I mean, the, yeah. the trend line yeah. has been. Uh, towards uh, more efficiency, reduced use of, of fossil inputs, yeah. and you know the the fuel producers selling into the into the California market, which is only ten percent of the fuel market, have demonstrated the ability to deliver a lower carbon product. You know, if you look at at, and I assume your listeners are familiar with the Argon Greet model, but this mm-hmm. is a, a a modeling tool produced by Argon National Laboratory, which is it's kind of the industry standard for doing what's called full life cycle assessment for fuels. And so this is a, a modeling strategy that where you, you, you take into account not just tailpipe, but everything that happens, wells, so-called wells to well to wheels. So yeah. you're, you know, for an ethanol producer, you are concerned with emissions that take place on the farm and yes. credits that take place on the farm. So uh, emissions and, and reductions, you're interested in transportations, you know, of the fuel, of the grain, you're interested in in what takes place inside the facility, and you're interested in those tailpipe emissions and the efficiency of the vehicle. Yeah. And so, you know, just to get, give a reference, you know, gasoline is around, you know, gets a score of in the 90s in terms of the grams CO2 equivalent per megajoule uh, uh, of fuel, you know, greet default. So just just run the, put all the default assumptions in, Ethanol is is about fifty five, with greet. Mm-hmm. You know, California defaults a little higher, but then okay. So where can you go from there? Um, well, you know, so some of the really big impacts are one of them is is uh, substituting natural gas for renewable natural gas. Mm-hmm. That's a big one, mm-hmm. and there are facilities doing this today. You know, some of it is sort of hey, I happen to be next to a. A landfill, so I have right. the opportunity to use landfill gas. Some of it's sort of, um, you, you know, you're in the right place and it's convenient to do so. Um, but you know, again, if you if you actually put some economic incentive there, a lot more of these things become possible. Exactly. Um, another big piece is, as you said, carbon capture and storage. And ethanol is is one of the lowest cost sources of of CO two. Um, we have now at the federal level something called the 45Q tax credit, um, and, and my colleagues in the in the carbon management team at, at Great Plains Institute convene uh, a group called the Carbon Capture Coalition, which uh, played a big role in advocating for the expansion and reform of that tax credit. So essentially, you can get a pretty attractive tax credit for capturing CO2 from an ethanol plant and permanently storing it. And so that's for some facilities, that's enough right there to do it. And there's there's a number of projects that have been proposed. Um, and and a clean fuel standard would just add an additional economic incentive because you lower the carbon intensity of the fuel that's produced in the process. And of course, you know, the third big area is your on-farm. And yeah. it's actually more than you mentioned solar organic carbon. 
Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And in yeah. some ways that ends up being a, a, a piece that gets a lot of, a lot of debate. Um, and, and no question, there's a big opportunity with solar organic carbon. We tend to get in, get in arguments about things like permanence and additionality, but, uh, and we could talk more about that, but mm-hmm. I, I think sort of the, un, some underappreciated parts of it are, you know, that there's more going on than just solar organic carbon on the farm. There's also nitrous oxide emissions exactly. and we have yes. opportunities to re- reduce that through precision agriculture and other strategies. And there's also upstream emissions related to producing fertilizer and other agricultural chemicals. And there's actually this new idea of green ammonia, mm-hmm. which could actually, you know, it's sort of, it's way upstream, but it is attributed to ethanol, right? So mm-hmm. if we can produce hydrogen through electrolysis from uh, renewable electricity, which may be stranded or may be produced at a time that doesn't align well with demand, um, you know, and then you can produce ammonia from that that renewable hydrogen. You have a, a very low carbon source of fertilizer, uh, and you've eliminated a big chunk of those upstream emissions. So, and there's also just simple things like, you know, energy use. What, how are you fueling your tractors? How many runs are you taking? Because you know, no-till builds soil carbon, but it also reduces the number of passes you need to take. Right. And those things are just totally non-controversial in terms of there's not even a you don't have to model anything. You just it's fuel receipts. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's pretty straightforward. Um so yeah, yeah. no, I, I think there's a huge potential. You and you we could look at other fuel types as well and see similar opportunities. If we actually place a value mm-hmm. on carbon intensity, you you're gonna be amazed at the level of innovation, private sector innovation that takes place. Yeah. To respond yeah. to those incentives. I think it this this is um you know a really uh, you know a, a really fascinating area because you know I mean I don't see I'm amazed that there really isn't the 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 you know you know but for groups like Ace and people mm-hmm. like Ron Alverson and mm-hmm. people like yourself I mean I I would just be running up and down the halls of Congress or my local state legislature screaming <laughs> about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the potentiality here, because, you know, it's so huge. And I just think it doesn't get the mm-hmm. attention, you know, that I think it rightfully deserves. If we really are serious about, um, you know, reducing and eliminating greenhouse gas emissions and it's, it's like, Oh, this is, and, and also the reality of what's implementable. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we implement now? You know, ready-made technologies. It's like this one, you know, th- these issues that we're talking about just seem like, you know, such a no-brainer uh, to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, when I, and I think you're hearing a lot more about this from all parts of the ethanol industry, in fact. And, you know, Br- Brian Jennings is the head of a- American mm-hmm. Coalition for Ethanol is an early leader in this and a, yes. again, a partner on this initiative. And uh, in fact, a co-founder of this initiative in the Midwest. Um, you know, if you listen to Jeff Cooper, who, who leads Renewable Fuels Association, it's kind of a standard part of his, his pitch now is, is mm-hmm. look, look how deep we can go if, if we actually have the incentives to exactly lower the carbon intensity of ethanol. So um, yeah, I think we're hearing more and more about it. And yeah. I, I think that the ethanol industry and, and biofuel sectors, you know, they, they know that, um, you know, it's 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 essential to the future of the industry to to be able to compete on carbon. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and, and really put forward ethanol as, as part of a comprehensive approach to yeah. decarbonizing transportation. And it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you also about, um, you know, uh, as, uh, how low do you think CI can go for, you know, for our biodiesel for, um, you know, conventional fame. And then also, um, you know, do you have a view about the scale up of, of renewable, uh, of renewable diesel? Um, as well as RNG. I mean, there's a lot of scale up of RNG that's taking place as well. And a lot of it is centered in the Midwest. Yep. Let me just, um, so I, I would say that, you know, I, I have some, some numbers in front of me looking at uh, um, different biodiesel scenarios. We have not gone as deep into um, looking at the, the potential to reduce emissions, but so, you know, with biodiesel, you don't have the opportunity for carbon capture, yeah. but you have opportunities to uh, lower energy use or displace energy use. And that's both going to be both natural gas related energy use and also uh, electricity. And, you know, that's the other piece I didn't talk about is, you know, we focus a lot on on lowering, uh, on, on evaluating the, the electric grid impacts for electric vehicles, yeah. but, you know, everybody uses electricity. So you know, everybody actually has a motivation to see the electric grid get cleaner or to find ways to use low carbon um, electricity. And so that can be a source of emissions reductions in the biodiesel industry. And then it just kind of comes down to, you know, d- debates about uh, co- co-product credits and, um, you know, it, it, it is which oil counts as a waste oil um, right. and, and things like that. But, you know, you get some pretty deep reductions with biodiesel and with renewable diesel, um, you know, RNG is an interesting case because, you know, you could get some, some, you know, according to Greet, very net negative emissions because we're giving renewable natural gas credit for um, avoided methane emissions because in, in many places we're, we're emitting methane from uh, organic waste, you know, storage and disposal. And uh, so that's, that's a huge benefit. I mean, it's just like, uh, um, it's just a no-brainer, right? Yeah, that that yeah. you know we can we can leverage energy markets and fuel markets to um, eliminate methane emissions, and so they they should be receiving that credit. Do you see um, RNG more um, right now? There's there's more of an incentive to use RNG in the transport uh, sector because you know LCFS credit, RFS two, you know the the D three rents on and so forth, but ultimately. In the long term, do you see RNG more um, in other uses, such as in you know in power generation or industrial applications, just like we talked about for for ethanol, or do you see um, or do you see them in kind of all three industrial applications, power generation, heating, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and transportation? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um... And and you know we, we we know that transportation markets are are driving a lot of the activity in the RNG space because the you know the credit prices are very high and and so um, kind of outcompetes other other potential uses you know essentially the transportation market's just willing to pay more but I think one of the positive sides is you know this move towards uh, pipeline quality gas and interconnection and um, 
you know, just the way the rules are set up to allow, uh, you know, essentially more fungibility within that market. So, you know, once you're in the grid, um, you know, you don't have to prove that that actual molecule gets there, but we're getting more accounting frameworks set up to, to make sure that we're avoiding double counting and, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, real use and real production are, are connected. But yeah, I, I do think that there's, there's actually a lot of sort of tougher to decarbonize use cases mm -hmm. that are looking at that, that renewable natural gas resource. And we just have to be aware that it's a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. um, there's a limited supply of, of organics from agriculture, ag processing, you know, municipal solid waste. Um, then we start to, you start to look at things like uh, synthetic natural gas through biomass gasification, but that's mm -hmm. also a, a, a limited resource. It's a significant, but limited resource. Yeah. Um, then you get, you know, you go beyond there and you start to look at things where it's, it's high cost, but sort of less limited. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you, you know, the possibility of, of producing synthetic methane. Um, again, this gets into, you know, inter intersection with the, the electric sector and you know, potential opportunities to produce um, gas from excess renewable, the so-called power to gas or power to X strategy, yeah. which again, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the constraints are not so much around the, you know, the resource, but around you know, economics and the high capital cost and, and uh, the challenges of sort of operating something with high capital costs, uh, not all the time or intermittently, which can be challenging. But um, yeah, I, I do think, uh, you know, again, there's multiple sectors looking at this. We've also done a, a bunch of analysis looking at um, end uses of natural gas. And so natural gas is used for a lot of residential and commercial heating. It's used in a lot of industrial applications. There's a lot of, you know, in the, in the same way in the transportation sector, we're debating how much, how far are we going to get with electrification and will it be usable in every use case? Um, I mean, that same debate's taking place with things like residential heating. Yeah. You know, can we electrify everything? Or are there, you know, are there places like, you know, colder climates where, um, you know, we're, we have limitations on, you know, air source heat, heat pumps or uh, in, in colder climates or during colder months? And so what's the value of natural gas, at least providing backup heating? Um, and so I, I, I think that I do see renewable natural gas playing a role in multiple sectors. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to exactly see how that plays out. And, and, uh, and some of it depends on policy. Some mm -hmm. of it depends on how, how much progress we make on technology development. Yeah. I guess the last fuel type I want to ask you about is how do you see electrification uh, scaling up in the Midwest in the coming years? I mean, outside of, uh, you know, of a, of a clean fuels uh, policy that might incentivize it uh, more. I see uh, electrification making rapid progress and and accelerating adoption over time. Um, I do think that there can be a tendency to sort of uh, hear all these 100% EV announcements and think yeah. it's just automatically going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think it is automatically going to happen. I think it will okay. require supportive policy, r- investments in infrastructure. A lot of those pieces are coming into play. We're seeing a lot more effort by utilities to make investments in you know, supporting their customers, providing value to their customers through you know, supporting infrastructure investments, um, supporting fleet electrification. But but it's uneven. I mean, uh, those efforts don't exist everywhere, and and a lot of those efforts are considered pilots. Yeah. And so there's a there's a big effort to scale up. Um, in the Midwest, there's not a lot of supportive state policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so w- where we see the fastest adoption, we see a lot more policy. You see uh, incentive based policies, um, regulatory policies. In fact, a clean fuel standard is is one of the incentive-based policies that can help accelerate EV adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way this plays out in other markets, it, 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 you know, number one, um, it's it works like another fuel where you, you know, you operate an EV charger and and you generate credits based on its actual use. That provides some real incentive. Um, and so you can you can use that the expectation of that incentive to finance, um, you know, the upfront cost differential. So you, you look at something like an electric transit bus, um, there is a bit of an upfront cost differential today Mm -hmm. between a diesel bus and an EV bus. But if you have an expectation of generating credits, according to our analysis, there's enough potential credit revenue over a 10 year period to eliminate that upfront cost differential. Um, that's hard to finance because it's variable, but you know, it does, it does certainly help a lot for for any EV use case, and you know, and some of the attractive ones are you know light duty vehicles, clearly an attractive use case in the medium and heavy duty sector. There's a lot of excitement around delivery, urban delivery, just mm-hmm. based on how those vehicles are used. They seem to be a pretty good fit, uh, and they seem to be pretty economically attractive. Transit bus is another pretty attractive use case. There's some non-road things like you know forklifts. It's just a no-brainer. Um, and, and if you can generate clean fuel policy credits, it, it makes it really attractive. I was just getting a, getting a, you know, pitch the other day on, uh, you know, golf equipment, just, you know, again, there's, there's a number of oh. these interesting niche applications, uh, freight, freight yards, mm-hmm. freight trucks, you know, these are things that are, are switching freight at, at freight yards. Um, they're driving all sorts of miles but they're not driving very far from a place they could refuel. They can have pretty small batteries. And also those freight yards are, are major areas of concern for local air quality and, and, and uh, EJ environmental justice concerns. And so, you know, again, that's just a no brainer. You can, you can eliminate those emissions. Depot depot charging. Whether it's a, you know, freight switching yard, rail yard, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in ports where you're operating a lot of diesel vehicles. Um, you know, so I, I think we, you know, I think one thing to emphasize about electrification, though, is uh, sort of the, the relentless math of vehicle replacement yeah. is is a hard thing, right? So you think about the lifetime of a vehicle, 15 years, um, and in in a number of Midwestern states, EV sales rates are still under 1%. Yeah. And so... Okay, 90% of the vehicles sold this year are not EV. Those vehicles are on the road for 15 years. So there's this long time delay from the point at which you achieve a sales goal 
to the point at which you achieve total fleet goals. So if we hit 30% sales, it's, you know, it's a decade off or more before we hit 30% of vehicles. So it just takes, it takes time. And so one of the, I think, important things to emphasize here is, you know, we can achieve greenhouse gas reductions more quickly with lower carbon liquid and gaseous fuels Mm -hmm. because the infrastructure is out there and the vehicles can use them at higher percentages today. Um, There's a time delay to achieving the same level of emissions reductions with EV. Yeah, I think it's, I, I, um, I agree with that approach and, but yet um, other advocates do not seem to agree (laughs) with that. They really do want to do a hundred percent, Mm-hmm. electrification. And I see that as very, very challenging. I mean, maybe it's possible in certain, you know, in certain states and certain regions of the country. I'm not sure I really see that as, I, I have my doubts about whether that's achievable at all, even in those states, but certainly in the Midwest, in, in I mean, that kind of time frame, a 2030, 2035 timeframe. I just don't, I don't believe in taking options off the table. I I think deep decarbonization is very difficult and we're not, we shouldn't be saying no to things that Mm -hmm. have a, have a good chance of offering real emissions reductions. We don't know what the future holds and, and we can't just put put all our bets on, on one thing. Yeah. So last question, we talked a lot about the the states um, in the Midwest and states in general, but how do you see national policy evolving, especially with the potential to recast? I've been calling it the the RFS two, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with respect to a potential national LCFS. I mean, what should the federal government be thinking about when it comes to low carbon fuels? We see a lot on electrification. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Biden infrastructure plan, we don't really see that much about low carbon fuels. Um, you know, just some right. R and D, and that's it. Well, uh, similar to the effort in the Midwest, um, you know, the federal focus is on on getting the engagement done up front. Um, yeah. But I'll, I'll just say there's a very significant effort underway at the federal level with very broad stakeholder interest and support. Um, and with a, with a focus on on you know advancing clean fuel policy at the federal level. And do you think there's folks listening? I do. Okay, that's good. I think there's there's very significant involvement by key interest groups in that process, and there's a lot of interest on the hill. Yeah, that's good. And that's you good. and that's something you'll you'll hear more about in the coming months. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Okay, great. Okay. Oh, yep. All right. Uh, that's the show. Thanks for listening. Uh, I want to thank Brendan so much for being on the show today and talking to us about GPI's um, efforts with the Midwest Clean Fuels Policy. It was great. Uh, great to have you on the show. Hope you come back again as, uh, as events uh, develop. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy. Okay. And if you're looking for more uh, analysis on future fuels issues, on future uh, fuels, energy, vehicles, transport energy, head to my website, Transport Energy Strategies, sign up for my free biweekly newsletter, and uh, keep abreast of what's going on, including what's happening on this podcast. Uh, And if you like this podcast, rate it so that it's visible to others and they can benefit, benefit from it. Thanks again.